and welcome to Think Digital Futures. My name is Shane Anderson. We're right in the middle of 2SCR's supporter drive, and this means there's no new episode this week. Instead, you're going to hear some of my favourite stories from this season so far. I'm going to kick things off with the episode that was the most fun to make. It's about data sonification. If you like Irish accents, Jimi Hendrix, sound art and science, stay tuned. But before we start this episode, 2SER is a community radio station. This means we're not in this for profit. We're doing this so you can hear strong, independent journalism about the things that you actually care about. So if you want to keep us on air, call up and make a donation on 9514-9500. So on with the show. This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Shane Anderson. I'm at the University of Technology Sydney Gallery with artist Gail Priest. What am I looking at here? (laughs) So uh, this is the exhibition called Sound in the Future. Gail is a sound artist. She experiments with electronic sounds, music, words and video to create sensory experiences, like the one I'm about to try out. My work, Sound in the Future, is an interactive piece that's like being inside a web page, like being inside a big hypertext fiction, really. And so you sit in the middle of a um, down projection of video and you wear headphones and you navigate through a range of scenarios. So looking at a stool and the stool swivels around. Uh, yes, uh, we call it the stool of the future. <laughs> um, yeah. Can I sit down? Absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> um, just hit the little button on the back. Gail hands me a set of headphones. This one. Just hold that down until it goes green. Yeah. With some trepidation, I put the headphones on. Welcome. While it may seem like the beginning, you are in fact in the middle. In the middle, we are here now, the only place we can be. Think of this middle as a plateau, one of thousands, from which we have a 360 degree view. All around us, mirages of possibles, potentials, dare we say, futures. While the narrator talks, I'm encircled by a network of data points from a projection above my head. It's like I'm in the center of some sort of orbit. These data points represent different choices that draw you deeper into the game. This world isn't the far-flung future. It could be next year, or a few months from now, or even tomorrow. And even though I can't see it, part of me still feels like I'm there. I have three options, future human, future city or future sighting. These futures may be true. Some may become true and others will always be fictions. You may not reach an end or a revelation. Maybe the best we can achieve is a saturation. For 15 minutes, the soundscapes twist and turn as I choose my own adventure. I explore a world where smart headphones filter out noises you don't want to hear, where Wi-Fi signals are transformed into musical notes, and where bionic ears and hearing aids connect seamlessly with our smartphones. I'm guided through a maze of possibilities of what the future might sound like. 
but I never actually leave my seat. Which way will we go? Gail, why do you rely so much on sound in your work? With all my sound pieces, they, they kind of end up being one-on-one experiences because in terms of sound, we're so used to just ignoring things. In order to get people to engage with the work, I feel like I need to make them make a choice. Like, you know, you've now made this choice to engage. You might actually engage for a little bit longer because you've made that choice. And I'm giving you choices as to how you will, how you want to define this little moment of your future. Yeah. An increasing number of people are using sound to challenge the ways we interpret the world. These people aren't only artists like Gail, but also researchers, scientists, physicists and teachers, for whom sound isn't just something to enjoy, but also something we can learn from. This is called sonification. But I'm still left with some questions. Why sound? What do you get out of sonification that you don't already get from seeing something? Why go to the effort? To answer this question, I'm going to need more than a lesson in science. I'm going to need a musical education. So I enlisted some help. Hello, my name's Mark O'Connor. I work here at UTS as a learning technologist and I have a background in mechanical engineering, music technology and teaching and shout out to the Gadigal people uh, of the Eora Nation on whose lands we are chatting and having a yarn. All right, do you want to start this with Jimi Hendrix? Yeah. What am I listening to? Voodoo Child. We need to listen to more Jimi. I just, you know, people aren't playing enough guitars these days. Listen to Jimi. Go back to the zenith. And uh, in terms of sonification, uh, all of the human emotion and possibility that have happened in music, Jimmy's right there. So it's a good starting point. That's the bit. Okay. Basically, he's hitting the B string, and he's hitting a B on his G string. Not what you're thinking. And he's bended up from below on that, and then he's slowly releasing it to make the pitch descend away from the B. So you can kind of hear both. And then he pulverizes it through his wah-wah pedal, which is just delicious filthiness a la electric guitar, which was Jimmy's gift to us. A good starting point for sonification. Mm. I think Jimmy was onto that long ago, before the scientists were. What Mark is getting at is that we've always conveyed information through music. And as listeners, we pick up on this, whether we realize it or not, like when we rock out to Voodoo Child because it's Jimi Hendrix. Mark says we tend to underestimate the connection between our sense of hearing and our emotions. Developmentally, the human race, we heard our predators before we saw them. Um, Also, the shape of the human ear is such that the frequency of usually around the cry of a, a baby is actually the most audible thing to our perceived hearing. Our ears are designed especially to tune into noises that fall between 2,000 and 4,000 hertz. Sounds that fall into this range alert us. So there's a graph of, if you look it up, phones and zones, whereby around 4K there's the the lowest dip of that. So that's basically, that sound doesn't need to be as loud for you to hear. So if your baby's crying in the next room, you'll care and get up and help the human race continue. 
It's not just crying babies that fall between these frequencies. The sound of fingernails running down a chalkboard is pretty universally repulsive, so no surprises, it also falls in this range. Sonification comes into the picture when specific sounds are chosen to convey a piece of information. For example, when we hear this. It's conveying that we can safely cross the road, but you should still look both ways. Or when you hear this in a hospital. We automatically know we're hearing someone's heartbeat, even though that's not the actual sound of your heart. It's just a representation of the data that the heart monitor is picking up. Researchers are starting to realise the potential for sonification. They're using it not just to create things that are cool to listen to, but as new ways to interpret data. And when you sonify things, you can actually learn something from the patterns and the discontinuities that it creates. Take this, for example. This is a sonification of a mutated strand of DNA. Mark explains. So in that, you can hear a percussive sound, a string sound, a kind of an organy sound. You know, they're MIDI instruments or whatever, so he, he assigned each to their own just to help the listener discern uh, better. But it, you can hear that kind of glitch bit. Let me see if I can... And so that's the mutation. Yeah, that's the discontinuity, and it's nice and obvious. And it's a good example. Like, that's a way to maybe accentuate the differences so that we notice them right in the real time. This sonification was made by another Mark, uh, Mark Temple. He's a lecturer at Western Sydney University and also drummer of the band The Hummingbirds. Thanks, Mark. What can be sonified? Potentially everything. The potential of data analysis opens up. So you could look at the city of Sydney and listen to the soundscape and realise, okay, in Bondi there's a higher percentage of alcohol-related injuries. <laughs> in, certain, in other areas, there could be higher percentages of cancer. Even though nearly anything can be sonified, Mark says that there's still a catch. People need to be able to understand what they're hearing. There has to be some kind of context for the noise. For a scientist, this means having some understanding of music in order to know how the composition works. And for a layperson listening to it, they're already going to need some idea of what DNA is, something to base their understanding on. So what is the point in hearing a DNA mutation if a scientist is already trained in how to see it? And then what's the point in listening to it if you already know what a DNA mutation is? This question is at the heart of an ongoing debate about the value of sonification. Should it be an art designed to entertain audiences, or should we be focusing on its scientific value? And is it possible to actually be both? I'm going to take a closer look at this after the break. This is Think Digital Futures. Welcome back to Think Digital Futures. 
Hi, I'm Leia Borromeo, journalist and filmmaker and co-founder of Disobedient, and also one of the originators of Climate Symphony. Um, I'm Catherine Rand, I'm one of the other founders of Disobedient, and again, one of the co-directors of Climate Symphony. Hello, I'm Jamie. I'm a composer working with Disobedient and the other, the last co-founder of Climate Symphony. So Climate Symphony is a data sonification project out of London, transforming data about our changing climate into live performances. You're listening to one of them now. Where did the idea for the Climate Symphony first come about? We were invited to a journalism hack day to reframe climate change and to rethink how climate change has, or to, to look at how climate change has been reported historically, and also to see whether or not we could find solutions to how to get it back on the agenda or back on the menu, as it were. But there was an idea that came out of that and I think either drunk or hungover, I phoned Catherine the next morning or the next day and um, said, I've got this thing. I think it's got legs. Do you want to come and play with me? And she said, yes. And here we are. First, they find a particular data set to tell the story of. This could be air pollution levels in southeast England or floods in Pakistan or the last three million years of sea and earth core temperatures. Then Jamie says once they have the data, it's up to them to interpret how it might sound. In Pakistan, that sort of feeling of percussion or, or hitting a, a community of people lends itself to the idea of some sort of like kettle drum or percussive hit. Similarly, the ice extent in the Arctic, that sounded a bit like some sort of string line rising and falling. So we, I think we chose cello. Before the break, I talked about how there's a gap between people who think sonification is for artistic value, like with Gail Priest and her work of sounding the future, and data sonification as a scientific practice, like sonifying mutations in DNA. The Climate Symphony definitely falls onto the artistic side of this spectrum. Ultimately, it's, it's, you know, we, are, we are trying to tell stories and we are storytellers. We're just coming about it in a very different way. If we can tell stories from this method, why can't we tell it with this method? Do you, do you see this as a form of journalism? Absolutely, 100%. How so? In that, you know, this is another way of communicating. This is another way of being able to relay stories and being able to report. We currently, I think, have lost the means by which to use sound and to use the sonic arts to um, communicate outside of words. I think we're kind of limited with words and we're also limited with pictures. If we're using those, and why can't we use something that's a little bit more emotional, a little bit more primal? Catherine also says that sonification can reach audiences in ways charts and graphs just can't. We are quite desensitised to being bombarded with information. It's a completely different sense, I think, for a lot of people to experience this kind of information. And I think that is partly why it's so effective. But not everyone agrees that this is what data sonification should be used for. Like Martin Keery. He's a designer for Microsoft with a background in classical music who makes YouTube videos under the name Tantacruel, like the Pokemon. I spoke to him over Skype from London, which is why the line is a little bit crackly. Here's the year and here's the temperature. So the temperature goes up or the temperature goes down. And what you do with that then is you kind of go, OK, well, I'm going to assign that to a musical parameter. And it just ends up sounding like it's going up or it's going down. Martin thinks that given the wealth of ways you can sonify data, 
this process is a little too simple. It's almost like you've taken a sentence written by someone else, gone into Google Translation, translated it to French, translated it to German, and then translated it back into English and emailed it to someone. You've you've just not done anything. Martin's main concern is that people won't realise what they're listening to is just an interpretation. And it can actually be easy to mistake the two. Like every now and then when you see a headline pop up about the sounds of space. Like this one, which purports to be the sound of the sun. But the thing is, you can't actually hear the sound of the sun. Even if it does make a noise, it's at a frequency we don't have a scope to imagine. This is what bothers Martin. It's so easy to twist this. And it's so easy to then present the results as, uh, I suppose, unknowable beauty. It's hinting at something that we can't understand, but that's beautiful all the same, which is completely untrue, because you've, you've gone and made that decision yourself. But can sonification be both an art and a science? Even though something like the Climate Change Symphony is not revealing hitherto unknown facts about the universe, it carries an emotional weight that still makes people think about what they're listening to. It all depends on your purpose. Do you think it's an art or a science? I think it can be both. What it is, is a technique. It's a technique of taking data from something, anything, any kind of parameter, and converting it into sound. That itself is just an operation. It's like, uh, you know, pressing the letter A on your keyboard. So sonification is a technique that can be used in a lot of different ways. It connects data to people by evoking a specific reaction. Perhaps its real value lies in its ability to make these connections. Mark calls this knowledge transfer. We're surrounded by buildings here at UTS, and in those buildings we have academics. Some of them teach the students, and that is a form of knowledge transfer, a very important one. But another really important one is the research centres that are here. So they all work on research projects and think and really do you know, analytical work to understand whatever it is they're trying to understand. So once that gets published and is proven, what happens to that knowledge? There's a huge gap between when the research is done and when the information reaches the public. There's like an average timeline between the idea happening and it benefiting the patients. Sometimes that can be up to 15 years. So, you know, if it's a piece of health research, how does that knowledge benefit person in the bed that needs it? And I, as a learning technologist, look at that space and go, surely that can be sped up. Surely, you know sonification of data. I think if it becomes a a thing that we can all get on top of, I mean, we all will swipe our phones over a a QR code, no problem now. I think if we develop a similar vocabulary and data sonification, a lot of that transfer of knowledge could happen through that channel. Sonification can help people understand the science as much as it can help us imagine the future. But it still seems to be a niche field, and it's really yet to hit its full potential. But when it comes down to it, anyone can sonify data and anyone can create music. And there's a wealth of online resources to help you do this. And I can even put some links on the website. So whether you want to tell stories or translate science, it's really up to us to push the boundaries of sound. Why not give it a go? This has been Think Digital Futures. Thanks to the University of Technology Sydney and 2SCR for supporting this show. If you want to hear more data sonification that didn't quite make the program, head to 2SCR.com slash thinkdigitalfutures. And if you want to learn some more ways sonification can help us understand our bodies, check out this week's Think Health program, where presenter Lara Corrigan gets hooked up to a machine that sonifies our health data. It's pretty cool. I'm Shane Anderson. Bye for now.
Why are so many people involved in data sonification Irish? Uh, that's because we've better bird singers than you guys do. Uh, no, well, you could expand that to why are we such good musicians. I've thought on that very much. I really do mean the birds are always there in the sun, in the trees in Ireland. But uh, I really do think that that is a form of synaptic programming that we've always enjoyed in Ireland. And I think, yeah, maybe we're ahead of the game in that as well. Thanks for listening to Think Digital Futures. Your donations go directly towards keeping us on air. So if you want to go on hearing more stories from the digital age, call us on 9514-9500. Every bit counts. And don't forget to say your favourite show is Think Digital Futures. Go on.